<laughs> All right, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the manager of student programs here. Um, thanks for coming out. We put these events on once a month at least um, to give you access to some scholars uh, that are giving you some great ideas, and I'm glad you can make it. Uh, Cato on campus, uh, what we do is we try to leverage a lot of the work that the Cato Institute does uh, and package it in a way that's applicable to uh, the student life, either for personal use or academic. Uh, we run a lot of events. Um, we hold an internship every semester. Our deadline for that is March 1st, so if you haven't done that yet and you're interested, uh, you can check that out um, at cato.org um, just search for internships. Uh, thanks. Uh, we've got, got a wonderful panel here today. Um, we've got Jim Harper from the Cato Institute. He's the Director of Information Technology Studies. Information Policy Studies. Um, he's done a lot of work in this area, and he's uh, pulled together an excellent panel, so uh, I'll give it up to him at this point. So, Thanks, Chip, and thanks to all of you for being here. We want to also thank the online audience, uh, especially appropriate that you should be here because we're talking about whether the Internet is a tool of freedom or a tool of oppression. Cue the scary music. Dun, dun, dun. The, way I, the way I thought about this... Uh, that's probably me. That's me. You're being, you're being, you're being a tool of oppression it right is there. A, it is a tool of oppression. That's not me anymore. Sorry about that, everyone. When I, when I, went, to, when I went to start thinking about this issue, I, I thought about a, a very, very offline problem that, that I read about in a book a, a year or two ago. The book's called How We Know What Just Isn't So, The Fallibility of Human Reason in Everyday Life. And one of, the, one of the sections of that book talks about a problem that roughly boils down to confirmation bias. That's when you look at the world around you and you think it works a certain way and you go and collect a lot of evidence that confirms what, how you think the world works. And what you, what you fail to do there is collect the evidence that disconfirms your view about how the world works. And I, I, I suspect, and I think a lot of people suspect, that maybe when we've been talking about the, the recent events in places like Iran and Egypt and Libya, we, and by we, I think I mean uh, connected people, people who are, who are in the digerati, if you will, who are really into online stuff, we've, we've collected a lot of evidence that, that things like Twitter and Facebook are maybe what's making this happen. And we're very excited about ourselves and, and our small role and the role of the technology that we love so well in making these things happen. But there are skeptics to that view, and I think that the skepticism is, is well warranted, and it will make us challenge our own, our own biases. Look, we were delighted and, and, and excited by the Twitter revolution in Iran, and we've been delighted and excited to see the Facebook revolution in Egypt. And it's easy to forget that the Twitter revolution in Iran uh, has not necessarily succeeded, and we have not much to give us confidence that the revolution in Libya will succeed in a way that, that, that makes the Libyan people better off, uh, the region better off, or, or uh, the interests of the world in peace better off. So uh, the, prob the problem here at a meta level is that we all need to think about these things carefully. We need to look at the evidence carefully. And I think that the panel that joins me here today is, is going to help us do that. Uh, in no way are we doing a debate with, on this side, the internet has helped everything, and we're lots better off because of it. And on, on the other side, we're worse off because of it. But, but we'll do more of an issue-spotting exercise, I think, where, where we talk about all the different dimensions to these issues. And there are so many dimensions to these issues. We'll barely get through 
uh, just, just the issue spotting. Again, watch and think. Don't assume how the world works in areas like this because it's, it's very complicated stuff. Uh, we're going to just go down the panel after, the, after my short introduction here and, and, and um, each of us maybe do just a couple minutes of our thoughts and then we'll have some discussions and back and forth. We'll get questions from the online audience through CHIP. And let's have, let's have you pipe up whenever you wish to if you have a question or a comment that's, that's consistent with the discussion we're having. Why don't, you, why don't you raise your hand, wave, jump up and down, do whatever it takes, or, or send a tweet to get, to get our attention. First, we'll hear from Alex Howard. He's the Government 2.0 correspondent for O'Reilly Media. He reports on technology, open government, and online civics. Easiest way to, to find him and get a hold of him is at Digifile on Twitter, D-I-G-I-P-H-I-L-E. He's got 60,000-plus followers, um, so you won't be the only one. He's got a huge online audience and does a lot of writing in, in fields that are so interesting to all of us. Uh, Chris Preble is a Cato Institute uh, colleague of mine. He's director of foreign policy studies here at Cato. He's the author, author of three books. His latest is called The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Uh, his his uh, count of Twitter followers is still at zero. <laughs> and Tim Carr, we're very pleased to have him with us as well. He's the campaign director for Free Press, which is a national media reform group. I'll say it's a unique pleasure to have him because uh, my colleagues and I in the free market movement don't agree with free press on lots of things, but uh, grown-ups in Washington work together on the things that they do agree on. <laughs> and we do very strongly agree, I think, on, on the importance of Internet freedoms worldwide. So, so it's uh, a, a great pleasure to have him here with us. Uh, let's each lay out a few thoughts and, and then have some discussion and Q&A. Alex, please. Uh, so the first thing I just point out is that don't be impressed by the number of followers someone has. Look at how much interactivity they have uh, on those networks. And that's particularly relevant when we talk about these sorts of platforms. Uh, it's not so much that someone has a huge following, it's how much influence they have in those areas. And you can see how that influence is actually instantiated in terms of whether they can move people to do things offline. That's where this stuff starts to matter more. What's really interesting in terms of what's been happening in the Middle East is seeing where weak ties online might lead to action offline. This is something, as Jim says, that uh, people are very excited about because it starts to pull together a lot of the themes that people have been discussing for uh, decades, frankly, but uh, that accelerated far more quickly than anyone expected. I will say one thing. I hate the terms Twitter revolution or Facebook revolution. It's not about those platforms, although clearly they are playing some role. It's about the people on the ground who actually went out and stood in front of water cannons, stood and got beaten, um, who actually came back day after day after day after day, and their armies actually didn't shoot, upon, shoot them, right? They, they actually joined with them. Um, I think that it's safe to say that these platforms which are allowing people to collectively organize to collectively move towards some action are playing a role. Otherwise, you wouldn't see Gaddafi talk about Facebook or shutting down the internet. You wouldn't have seen Egypt do it unless they thought that it mattered. There is something there where we all have mobile phones in our hands, which are pervasively connected to the internet, where we can post pictures, which then are picked up by the world and those voices are amplified. That's a, clearly a powerful thing that we're all trying to understand, but to call it, uh, I think, simplistically a Twitter revolution or Facebook revolution or YouTube revolution, whatever kind of thing, it's not about that. It's about people-powered revolutions, which technology then enable everyone else to see, participate, and support. 
Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. And I'm supposed to be arguing the other side. So uh, <clears throat> uh, thanks to Jim for inviting me here. Um, I, I'm here because Jim invited me. I, kinda, I was an Internet geek once upon a, a time. I worked for two different Internet companies, but that was a very, very long time ago. But uh, at Jim's invitation, uh, in preparation for this, I, I read uh, Genny Morozov's book, The Dark Side of Internet Freedom, The Net Delusion, the subtitle being The Dark Side of Internet Freedom. Um, and I just wanted to make a few comments. I was going to conclude with saying it's really all about people and technology is just a tool. Um, so uh, my, my thunder is stolen. Um, but I do want to call out two other aspects of Morozov's argument that I think are, are worth pondering for a minute. One is the straw man that he sets up, which is exactly that, a straw man that, that essentially says the Internet is the key to liberty and that uh, uh, it will inevitably spell the end of uh, tyranny and autocracy. He actually, the, the way he sets this out is that authoritarian, this is a quote, authoritarianism, authoritarianism becomes unsustainable once the barriers to the free flow of information are removed. Now, that's not his argument. That's the straw man that he sets up to then spend the entire length of the rest of his book uh, demolishing that straw man. I don't think anybody really believes that. At least I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would believe that technology is a tool. So I, I think, and, and only that, it ultimately does depend upon people being willing to do uh, occasionally dangerous things and occasionally life-threatening things. Um, <clears throat> the other point that he makes, and I want to make sure this is put on the table, is that the, the U.S. government's uh, combination of hubris and uh, I was trying to come up with a good word to describe it, obliviousness, that is a remarkable lack of self-awareness um, that they displayed by basically thinking we can tap into this thing, this Internet and the social media that goes along with it, uh, and even manipulate it, but not be seen as doing such, and therefore avoid the stigma of active democracy promotion and uh, counter-government activities that were conducted long before the days of Internet, all the way back to, you know, Iran 1953, Guatemala 1954, and countless other examples from the Cold War. Um, I think that's silly. I think Morozov's book is useful for demolishing this, I, I think, quite effectively. Uh, and I do think it, it, call, it raises serious questions about the role that the U.S. government or, frankly, any other government should play in promoting this kind of technology. Uh, I think it's, a, it's, a very, it's very difficult to draw a distinction between uh, empowering people and, seeing, and being seen as acting uh, to advance a particular foreign policy objective. Um, the last point I'll make very quickly um, is I have ultimately concluded that, that the Internet and social media are a net plus for liberty, un, un, unlike what Morozov said. I know it's supposed to be a debate. See, I'm really not doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, um, because and the thing that I fixed on was uh, that, that the Internet and social media make leadership um, less important uh, over time. And, and what I mean by that is... Uh, as, as a historian, you know, you think about the role of someone like Samuel Adams or, uh, or John Adams, or especially Samuel Adams, in mobilizing people in places to rally around a, a tree and then to burn an effigy or, or drive from town a, a, a tax collector. Um, that you needed that very charismatic personality, and then you needed people to congregate in a place 
which if you were a government that was trying to quash that, then you provided them with a very simple tec technique for uh, eliminating your opposition. You either kill them or you just round them all up and you throw them in jail. It is technically harder to do that these days. Not impossible, but harder to do that. And I think that's a net plus. And it, it, it also just has very tactical applications. A lot of what, uh, you know, past leaders did was, was kind of teach nonviolent techniques, but they needed to have some kind of personal interaction in a meeting or something like that. And now the ability to disseminate information at a very kind of practical, tactical level. The New York Times said a story a couple weeks ago about Gene Sharp and the, the techniques that he developed back in the, gosh, I guess back in the 60s. Um, and now they were disseminated via an entirely different medium and put into the hands of people without having to rely on a single charismatic figure to do it. So uh, that's, that's my, my quick takeaway from Morozov's book. I thought it was an interesting and provocative book, uh, but I think, and I think he would, I suspect even he would admit this, it goes farther even than the, than the straw man argument that he, that he sets out. Well, uh, I mean, that was great. The, I mean, first, uh, a couple of observations. I, I think um, Evgeny's book, um, had he known that literally weeks after it was published, that what has happened has happened, he may have reconsidered his thesis. Um, the, uh, and another observation, it just, and this is, I've been thinking about this more and more, it's like, uh, it contrast our approach to imposing democracy in the Middle East in 2003 to the events that are occurring today. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, our role in Iraq and Afghanistan and the sort of political philosophy at play there compared to the kind of bottom-up bringing of democracy that has occurred. Now, the question that we're pondering today is, did an open internet play a role? Did, did social network play a role in what we see today happening as opposed to probably what, I don't think it would have happened in 2003. I don't know that social media was that advanced. If you look at the history of Facebook and Twitter, it's pretty immediate. Um, so that's more of an observation. I'd be happy to talk a lot more about that because I think there's an interesting um, differences of approach there. Uh, but ultimately, and in, in terms of this debate, I think <clears throat> uh, we should apologize because we all agree. <laughs> um, if you came here to see arrows and, and you know, stones thrown, you're probably not going to see it. I, yes, um, internet, the internet doesn't cause revolutions. People do. Um, is the internet different than other tools of communication? You know, pamphleting by Thomas Paine in the uh, 18th century. Yes, it's significantly different. So there, there, is, a, there is a difference there. And, and I think that the difference that we need to, that, that is important about the internet, why it is such an important force for democracy, is that as in, it, it is important because it control over content resides at the edges of the internet. And this is a, a concept that you may have heard of. It's called an end-to-end -end principle. And in the earliest days when internet engineers were trying to figure out how the system would work, they said they, they decided to use an end-to-end -end principle, which basically meant that most of the control and intelligence within this network resided at the end nodes. Um, I mean, any internet engineer can tell you that today it's slightly different. There are routers that do, that do manage the network in different ways, but a longer discussion. Jim and I will probably have it another menu. Uh, but, uh, but ultimately, that founding principle of the internet, an engineering principle, a network principle, translates very well to politics 
and especially to movement politics, because what you have is a decentralized and very democratic system that is oppositional to autocratic rule, oppositional to gatekeepers, oppositional to efforts to try to insert oneself in the middle of the network and try to shut it down. Now, what we saw, there was some success in doing that in Egypt recently, so there is more debate to be had around how, you know, how, um, how well this functions. But at the same time, you did see a lot of people, an amazing um, upswelling of people, of, of engineers, really, who were create, creating proxy systems in ways that you can actually get around this control. Because the network itself um, is built in a way that prevents that type of autocratic rule. Now, that said, it is a double-edged sword. The same technology that can be used to foment um, uprising, to facilitate this, uh, uh, free speech, can also be turned uh, against people, not only to, to spy on uh, online dissidents, but to actually track them down. And we, in fact, have seen this technology in use. Um, you can, through GPS systems and cell phones, not only look at what someone's tweeting, and, and there is evidence that this was happening in Iran, but you can actually figure out where they are and send, in that case, the Revolutionary Guard or the Iranian security forces to that address to throw that person in jail. So, um, so before we get to questions, I'm just going to wrap real quickly and say that the, it is, we are at this time of great uncertainty about what the internet is and what it represents. And I, I see clearly it's a helpful tool to democracy. And the question is not so much whether, um, whether it is a tool for democracy or repression. The question to me really should be, what are we going to do about it? Um, we are seeing things change so rapidly on the ground right now that we can debate it and we can debate it. But at the same time, we need to find a way to defend the kind of free speech that we're seeing happening right now. And there are a lot of policies that we can explore. We can look at what is happening at the State Department, where Secretary Clinton is trying to burnish herself to sort of have the credentials of, as a champion of the, what she calls the freedom to connect. And I think the questions we should be asking are basically, what does that mean? And if we do all agree that this is an important tool for free speech, how do we then work together to make that meaningful? Please, Chris. Can I just add, um, the way that Morozov sets up his book, uh, as I read it, is this is governments versus the people. And so therefore, and, and, and this may just be a straw man, um, but it occurred to me, so we think so much that the government being autocratic, illiberal, and then the reformers being liberal, but, but you turn this around, and the same thing that I said a minute ago about the ability of leaders to mobilize people without having to bring them into a certain place, we see that being used by illiberal groups and illiberal people from al-Qaeda on down. So it, at least we ought to put on the table that the dark side includes the potential for illiberal uh, groups to use this tool to undermine or overthrow relatively liberal societies and governments, and we at least okay. ought to put that on the table. Well, let me let me um, throw a few stones at you, Debbie Downers, uh, in terms of the internet, and make the case that it's that it's pretty pretty darn brilliant. Because uh, listen, it's it's a given, isn't it, that that when the Egyptian government miscalculated the way it did and closed down the internet service provider 
base in the country. I guess there are about six Internet service providers, and they were ordered to shut down their border gateway protocol function, which is what allows them to communicate with, with other Internet providers or backbone. Um, that sent the people to the street. Take away the Internet from that calculation, and nobody goes to the street. So, so isn't it true that you have to have the Internet in place for that to have happened? And, and, and let me also add to that uh, an anecdote. I opened by cautioning against confirmation bias. I'm going to exercise some confirmation bias, but maybe um, counter myself in a later example. <laughs> I got a cab ride back from DCA last week, and I, I literally I sat down in the cab, and the guy said, Gaddafi's attacking the people in Libya. And I, I was like, okay, well, okay, thank you for the news update. But, <laughs> but uh, I, no, I was, in seriousness, I was interested to hear what was going on. I've been offline for a couple hours, and so was, I, was, I was interested to hear what, what was happening. But we talked the entire way home, and this was an Egyptian man whose sons live in Egypt, and he told me that, that right now today, referring to last week when we were driving back to my place, um, when, when they need uh, some cleaning done, that's being organized on Facebook. When, when they need some security work done, that's being organized on Facebook. If someone needs somewhere, anyone, something anywhere in Cairo, um, they're organizing civil society, if you will, in a general sense of the phrase, on Facebook. Let's not talk down the importance of this, and I, th I think each of you make the case on both sides well, but, but this is a necessary condition to the kind of, of change that we're seeing in the Middle East right now, isn't it? I don't know about that, Jim. I mean, I think um, it may be true that that particular actions that are that are seen or perceived as kind of a, a draconian or an overreach or or an obvious abuse of power, like shutting down people's access to the internet. I'm still not really convinced that that's sufficient to drive. Uh, tens, even you know, hundreds of thousands of people into the street to risk their lives, it seems to me there must be other grievances uh, in addition to that. Maybe that's a precipitating factor. Maybe it brings out people who are not particularly hungry or not particularly unemployed or underemployed. But there, all the evidence that I've seen, if you're focusing just on Egypt, suggests that there was so much more than just the abuses of the regime and its heavy-handedness uh, that that were at play. It was a. It, I would say it's fair to say it was a combination of things. So you're looking at an autocratic regime that had been in power uh, for decades, right. and uh, and so there was an amassing of complaints. Now the question I think is whether the internet and the outages that happened on the internet was an accelerant to all of that. It made it. It gave it a way to come to head and for them to create this sort of sense of community, like we're all in on this. But I, I, I also caution against that because I, I, I wish, you know, I, I, if I had more time prepping, I would have looked at the actual internet penetration rates yeah, in Egypt. Yeah. And because I suspect that there, it's a, it is a fairly, you know, as the Middle East goes, fairly technologically advanced country. But I suspect that the penetration rates are probably around, are probably less than 50%. I would say that's a safe guess. I'd say probably far less than 50%. And that a lot of the, everybody who was out in the street wasn't necessarily online. So they, there, there is, you know, it may, it may have been an accelerant, uh, certainly a contributor, but I think there are other contributing factors that may have even been greater than that. 
Alex, have you been able to pull the data at this point? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of people on this wireless network right now, um, <laughs> which, of course, is one of the, the challenges. Uh, you know, I, what, what's interesting, um, certainly in Egypt, we should talk about Tunisia, too, because clearly uh, technology played a role, and, and there is another country which has uh, uh, fallen much more quickly than we thought it might have. Um, and, and there, uh, we know some more of the, the, uh, the stats, I think a 30% internet penetration rate, something like 2 million people were on Facebook. And in talking with Tunisians, what they told me that it played a role in, in a number of ways. Um, specifically, uh, in some of the ways that the Pew Internet, uh, internet and, and Life Research has backed up its acting here, which is uh, allowing people to uh, create the groups that uh, exist offline, online, and to find people of like mind online and then take those relationships offline. There's some reciprocity there, and, and the data is emerging to support that. So it's not exactly a shock to think that we see that instantiated in, in other countries. Um, what's interesting, I think, in uh, what we saw in, in Egypt and uh, other parts of the Middle East isn't necessarily simply the phenomenon of the Internet itself. It's the phenomenon of people having mobile phones. I think actually that's more important because the videos that we've seen are uh, by and large taken on mobile phones and then they may not be uploaded to YouTube right away. Often they're moving around through sneaker net, right? I mean, people are taking them to their computers some other, other place or they're connecting anonymously. They're not going straight to YouTube. Uh, that has significant uh, uh, risks to them if they can be found. Cell phones are wonderful for taking video and getting tweets out and for being hubs, but they're also quite good at making yourself a target for uh, telecommunications um, providers uh, who are, have been co-opted by government. Remember, these are this is a part of the world where um, those kinds of taps are, are de rigueur and are often supported, in fact, by companies that come out of uh, the West. Um, this, this is something that um, the government here, I think, has a lot of challenges with as we think about um, how we move forward electronic surveillance. The sorts of things that we choose to do here can and will be looked at in other countries, whether it's deep packet in, uh, inspection, whether it's filtering technology, whether it's other censoring technologies. And our choices uh, in foreign policy are also going to be uh, reflected back in us as a mirror. Um, so the complexities of, of promoting net freedom, per se, uh, often start right here at home. I've seen some hands, and I, and I want to get to those. Um, I do want to get back to Tim Carr and, and some of the question of U.S. technology providers assisting these governments. But do, were there questions or comments at this point? We get a, a mic down here. Let's take the gentleman in the third seat in there in the fourth row from here. Uh, hello, my name is Kevin Duncan. I'm with GW Liberty Society. Um, this is a question to Carr at the end. Uh, what level of spontaneity was there in the Middle East protest? Uh, was it more building up over time, or was it more like striking a matchbox? How is this compared to your common relating to uh, countries using means to crack down on dissident groups on the internet? I'm sorry, was that, was that for me? Or? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, okay. Uh, I actually don't have, I don't have an answer to the, the first question. I hadn't monitored it as much, but I, I mean, the one ish, the one piece that seemed to play an important contributing factor in, in Egypt was this Facebook community that was started by a Will Gonim, and I'm probably murdering the pronunciation of his name, uh, a Google executive based in the Middle East who was Egyptian, uh, started a Facebook group that was protesting the, murdering, uh, the murder by um, security uh, police on January 25th, I believe was the date of the murder last year, of a fellow who had shared, he shared a videotape 
of uh, uh, security forces, Egyptian security forces, uh, divvying up drug money. And he, he was near a cafe where they were sending this via a wireless network, and somehow his computer got onto the wireless network, and he captured this video, and he sent it to a couple of friends. And they sent it to a couple of friends, and you all know how that goes. And, um, and within days, he received uh, a knock on the door, was dragged out into the street, and beaten to death by these same security forces. And that um, was a part of this sort of compounding of, of complaint around Egyptian authorities. But they, they put that on, uh, they, uh, Ghanim created a Facebook community that had hundreds of thousands of people uh, in, to protest this murder, uh, and that became an accelerant. Now, I don't know the, how internet usage accelerated during the last three weeks. I don't really have the answer to that. But what, and what was your second question? Just how it related to groups, uh, regimes using power over the net to track down dissident groups. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, I think the, the, this conversation in many ways should be about China um, because China is the most advanced in doing this. And we just saw uh, in the recent days that they've actually um, shut down LinkedIn. Um, and Jim, you sent around, or one of yeah, us, you sent around yeah. information that they were also. Um, they were also preventing people from searching for Hillary Clinton's speech last week about the freedom to connect. And so I think, you know, that it, it is widespread. We've seen uh, in Nepal they shut down the Internet during the recent troubles there. Uh, Burma has done the same. We've seen Egypt do it. Uh, to in some extent it was, it was done in Bahrain. Um, uh, but I think we really should be talking about China because it, there is a, and I think this is the next question for me, there is an issue about technology, Western technology, being used to facilitate this kind of cyber crackdown. And the real problem is, it's not so much that this, it is a problem that there are Western companies selling this technology to regimes that have deplorable human rights records, but the engineers in China don't have a problem with that. If you, if, you know, we cut off the export of internet technology to Egypt or Saudi Arabia or other countries that are, have these records, uh, China will say, well, we're happy to do business with you. So, um, so anyway, that that's, may have been a, a bit of a detour, but I think we do need to talk about China in the middle of all this. So I wanted to chime in here. So um, we can talk about the role of, of Twitter, um, and even though there are very few people there, clearly it can amplify things very quickly. And, and uh, Facebook, um, you know, will go name clearly did something that was important there, so important that the people who created that page had to go into hiding the week before those protests. And the page itself was actually maintained by someone here in, in Washington, which came out in 60 Minutes. She was uh, brave enough to stand up and say, I, with a team of people here, tried to help keep that up because we thought it was important. And uh, you know, he went on and, and said that uh, this wouldn't have happened without these networks. So we can take that with a grain of salt, but we uh, figure he, he, he certainly knows more than I do about what actually happened there. Just to clarify, and when, when you say someone here in Washington, a private citizen here. That's correct, right. yeah. Um, what's interesting in, in terms of this, this news um, about LinkedIn going down is that, uh, as anyone who knows uh, uh, something about the Internet, um, there's this uh, inkblot effect uh, when you try to uh, chase down information. It's not just about WikiLeaks and trying to you know, find that bit. 
it's uh, something called the Streisand effect, of, of all things. Um, when she tried to shut down criticism of her, it instantly spread elsewhere online. And there's now a history of uh, communities revolting um, when uh, there are certain kinds of, of code that would um, take down DRM, uh, which is digital rights management, the thing that locks your music uh, into a particular platform, got posted on Dig. Um, the community uh, revolted when Dig knocked the post down and put it all over the place. And eventually, they had to give up. Um, so this goes back to if you're trying to shut down specific parts of the net that the government doesn't like because it thinks that people are organizing there, and often they're right, um, it'll spread somewhere else. And there was a story shared today that, uh, in fact, uh, Libyans were communicating through online dating network. Uh, they were doing so under pseudonyms. Um, you know, they're taking different names, and they're using that as a means to communicate. What does that teach us? It says that um, people will find a way. And I think uh, it brings us back to uh, an interesting phrase that Secretary Clinton used in her internet uh, freedom speech earlier this, uh, this month, actually. And I recommend going back and reading that if you're interested in this topic. Something called the dictator's dilemma. And I think it's actually well articulated. Uh, there's, there's lots of things about their policy that are problematic. But on this, I think they're correct. It's very difficult for countries to make full use of all that the internet brings you as an open platform in terms of the velocity of communications, of uh, social connections, of commerce, um, all the things that are possible without bringing in full liberalization in terms, or at least some aspects of it, um, with it. You can't have one without the other. And if you bring in the one, it's a huge load to try to actually shut down those parts. Now, we're seeing China try to do that. Uh, it's almost like a uh, you know, communist government trying to bring in pockets of capitalism, which, in fact, they're trying to do offline. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to do that because of the technical acumen that uh, is demanded of them. And one of the things that they've chosen to do is to create their own social networks with uh, backdoors and filtering built into them. There's a Chinese version of Twitter called Weibo. Very, very popular. Uh, but try to put something on there that government doesn't want. If you're a journalist like uh, Nick Kristof, a New York Times columnist, he set up an account. Uh, it was detected very quickly and knocked right off. The State Department has tried setting up accounts. They get knocked right off. Um, they are going to, we're all going to be challenged in that space. Other questions, comments? How about down here in front? I have I have so many things I want to ask that I'd use up the whole the whole time. <laughs> so I've got to discipline myself. Trevor Burris with the Cato Institute. I was wondering, isn't the expected response here that the more we see this happening, governments are going to be more wary about the internet, and so they're going to not allow new functionality unless they can figure out how to control, track, or shut it down if they need to? And are we seeing that already? Well, I. I was going to say, again, what he just said, which is they want so much to be able to take advantage of the good parts that it's going to be harder and harder to keep out the bad parts. Not impossible, and I think everyone agrees that China is trying very, very hard. But, but I think it's just going to be close to impossible to do that forever. To, to, and, and, the, and, then you're, and then you're weighing the costs and benefits of being fully connected or close to fully connected versus the, the cost of being completely shut down. And yes, you can look like North Korea, and, and we know how that plays out, too. And an interesting point, I had been, I was at the, the State Department earlier and uh, talking about a lot of the same things. And one of the, uh, the things that a fellow brought up there that I thought was worth noting and certainly very relevant to your question is that these are our online economies as well. 
And if you shut down the internet in the way that Egypt did, you're, you're costing yourself hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're trying to figure out what that actual calculation is for an economy. So there are not only political, potential political costs, there are real economic costs. Yeah. And they're potential too, right? I mean, it's worth pointing out that if uh, you're an unstable country, to the extent that uh, it's demonstrated by you being willing to shut down critical communications networks, or more to the point, traffic flowing through your country, which Egypt did serve as, um, it's not just a matter of, of losing the commerce day by day, it, it's losing any potential investment down the road. Uh, and that, you know, given that countries are competing on a global scale for investment, that's not a small thing. Tim, I want to ask you to, to take, take us into some detail on the types of things that governments are doing to, to, to fight back the, the organizing that might be done online against them. You, you wrote a very interesting piece on a, a company called Naris, which is a U.S. company. Sure. It provides some level of surveillance capability uh, for legitimate law enforcement, of course, but it can also be used for illegitimate uh, oppression. NSA uses Naris, allegedly. So, we'll so tell know. us what Naris is, what they do. Uh, um, the Naris is a, is a Boeing-owned company based in Sunnyvale, California, um, started by Israeli security experts. Um, and they market a technology that's called deep packet inspection technology. There are other companies that sell deep packet inspection te technology, but they, the other companies oftentimes market it as a way that you can better manage your networks. It allows you to filter online traffic. You put DPI technology on the routers that, are, that make up the kind of... Maybe I'll just, I'll just add, for those who don't know, Internet communications travel by packet. And so usually you just look at the front end of the packet if you're routing if you're right. routing an internet communication and just send it wherever it's supposed to go. Deep packet inspection is is taking a look at what the packet is about, figuring out what's crossing the network and deciding whether it's going to go, whether it's not, what you're going to report about it. Just for the people who don't know right. the terminology. And it's 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 called a dual use technology in that it can be used uh, for legitimate law enforcement purposes to filter traffic to uh, uh, child pornography, for example. Um, it can be even used for legitimate economic purposes to be able to manage your networks better. Um, um, but it, it also, in the wrong hands, can be used for political repression. And what we saw, and the problem with NARAS in particular is not, they don't sell it so much for economic purposes. They sell it explicitly as a surveillance technology. Um, they have a product called Hone, which allows you to hone in on people. Um, and they have sold it to the Saudi Arabian Telecommunications Authority, to the Pakistani Telecommunications Authority, and lo and behold, to the Egyptian Telecommunications Authority. And so we have an issue here with Western technology that's being sold to repressive regimes and be being used in the commission, literally, of crimes against humanity. Um, and so uh, I wrote a piece uh, that was widely cited, uh, sort of outing Naris for this, and um, and and they were very upset by that. <laughs> um, and uh, although they wouldn't talk to the media, and still won't talk to the media about what they were doing in Egypt, um, we did get a hearing at the House um, Foreign Relations uh, Committee a couple of weeks ago, in which um, a Republican and a Democratic member of Congress talked about Naras and recited my report, and then they sort of said, and we're going to do something about it. And, and that's the last I've heard. Um, I, will, I will, you know, I do intend to get back to these offices and figure out what that is, but it's a problem because they're not selling, you know, on the streets of Egypt, they were holding up canisters that 
tear gas canisters that had the Made in USA label on the side. And that, you know, that's what you call a smoking gun or a smoking canister. And the um, uh, NARS technology, we don't really know how it's been used. And, uh, and we probably never will. Um, it's hard to track. It's hard to figure out. And as I said earlier, if NARS doesn't sell it to Egypt, I'm sure someone in China will. Um, and uh, so we have a problem with a sort of what I call, and it's something I've been writing about a lot, what I call the privatization of censorship, where governments are actually increasingly relying on corporations to, even Facebook, for example, to, or Twitter, to act as their agents uh, to shut down free speech. And, uh, and it, it, the more I look at it, the more profoundly disturbing an issue it becomes. Chris, Chris I want to ask you, maybe putting you on the spot, if you want to give us some thinking on what has been done traditionally with dual-use technologies. Can you... Can you take take us through what the what the thinking is on dual use technologies in general, and then maybe we'll try to adapt that. Yeah, I would, no, that was the question that just popped into my head uh, as Tim was saying that. Um, we have a fairly well established procedure here in the United States uh, governing the sale of technology, dual use technology. That is technology that can have a legitimate commercial purpose, but a dual use as a military purpose. Um, the, it's run through the Department of Treasury, and the CFIUS is the relevant, um, although I can't even tell you what the, what the acronym stands for, um, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but uh, when, when Tim was saying that, it, I immediately just started running through my head, why would HONE not be covered by CFIUS. You see it more actually more relevant to foreign companies wishing to purchase uh, interests or properties or companies here in the United States. And you know, we've heard, you know, we know some of the more famous ones like the Dubai Ports World case or um, uh, the, the um, uh, Unical, no, not Unical, the, uh, the oil company case. I'm blanking on it. Um, but it also applies in the other direction when U.S. companies are trying to sell material or, or, or and because, you know, it was very, it was very industry focused once upon a time and we think about, about military power once upon a time being based on, on, you know, machine, machine tools and things like that. Well, obviously that's not the case anymore. And so industry has a much more expansive definition. Um, and, you know, so the first thing I'm going to do is, send an email to my friend who works on these things and say, why is Hone not covered by this? And he might be able to explain <laughs> it to me. So. Maybe a follow-up. <laughs> and I probably can't tell you what he tells me, but I'll... Uh, uh, other questions, comments? Let's take in the green sweater right here. Thank you. Sorry, I'm going to come back to you. I know you've been... I apologize. Uh, I was actually about to ask a question, and then you kind of answered it almost, but... What I was going to say is that I think what we saw in Egypt that was so uh, sort of groundbreaking was that the snowball effect of Facebook and disenfranchised people and then the eventual shutdown of the Internet really just riled everyone up. And what's scary about this, this NARIS technology you're talking about is that if governments can f detect these revolutions or people who are you know unsatisfied with their governments before it can spread, they can nip it at the bud, and, and that's, I guess, the ultimate censorship. And, uh, you know, you say U.S. Congress says, oh, we're going to do something about it, but I bet you they're still going to use it, too, though. But, 
can, can I answer this question? Because this gets to what I said earlier about the importance of leadership and, and how you mobilize, uh, you know, reform movements, opposition movements. At the end of the day, you still need the guys to knock on the door, right? And, it, and if you have a Facebook uh, account, which by, by you know, it, it was tens of thousands of people, right? The January 25th Facebook, uh, larger than that. So, you know, how many police do you have? How many, how many doors can you knock on? I mean, there comes a certain point where the technology does allow you to transcend the physical barriers that used to be kind of the, the critical factor in being able to crack down on dissent, which is to kill or imprison someone. There's right? all, it's also, in terms of you know, mental errors people make, be careful of hindsight bias. I heard somewhere that, that someone criticized our CIA because they didn't, they didn't see this coming. What, right. <laughs> what, what combination of factors caused this to happen in Egypt? Uh, and, then, and then write an algorithm that tells me when it's going to happen in the next country. That's your challenge. <laughs> hindsight bias says, oh, and, and applying that same thinking, uh, how, do you, how do you know which news event is going to crystallize which population into doing which action so that you know how to nip it in the bud? I think it is a harder problem now online as compared to in the past when it was everybody meet at a certain place to talk about a certain subject. I thought you said there wasn't an app for that. You know, you're saying you write the algorithm. <laughs> this so-called debate is all of us debating with ourselves at, at times. Did you have anything? Anything? No, you that just to say just the quip about the algorithm. Just snarking, <laughs> snarking at me. Let's come. Let's come over here for another question. Can I take a moment and chip in from online? Please do, Please, chip. Yeah. Chip All in. Right. Uh, so this question is from Mary. She asks, "Should internet companies be responsible for helping to protect the anonymity of protesters and organizers against oppressive regimes who may try to retaliate?" That's a good question. I'll actually add one 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 uh, detailed gloss to that, which I thought would be interesting to talk about. Uh, Companies that have uh, policies like Facebook's of you should be identified uh, properly on our site versus Twitter's, which is there's no requirement for that. What are your thoughts about that? Preserving what 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 do companies owe? What should they do when they're trying to balance these these problems? Um, so that's complex, right? Uh, there are a, a lot of people who are quite concerned with some justification about online civility and discourse. And if you've hung out on newspaper uh, comment sections or YouTube recently, you've experienced this. Um, and I've experienced this too. Part of um, the reality of having a platform with a lot of people following you is that you, uh, you catch some flack, right? Um, and, and it's not a bad thing for people to disagree or even violently disagree. It is a bad thing for um, you to be tracked down by the secret police because you uh, expressed a difference of opinion with the government, or even worse, uh, advocated for change. And that is, in fact, exactly what happened in Iran. Um, and there are real risks for um, the choices that the rest of the world makes in amplifying certain voices. Um, as you may know, um, a fellow named Andy Carvin, who at NPR has been uh, shifting his activity in the last uh, Geez, six weeks now um, since uh, I think Tunisia really broke um, because he had some experience with uh, what was happening in uh, Tunisia, having been there, and has been tweeting about 400 times a day. And what he's been doing is amplifying the pictures and videos and other snippets out of there, trying to be as documentary-focused as he can, um, first in Tunisia, then Egypt, now whatever they can find in uh, Libya. 
What's challenging is that um, in amplifying those voices and empowering them and sharing them out to the rest of the world to try to um, do what little bit you can as a journalist to see what's happening there without the pe people on the ground, you risk exposing those folks. And uh, yesterday, uh, notably, the Google's uh, public policy blog actually said that there are situations where it makes sense for people not to um, have their real identity expressed to a piece of content online. Now, that's a fairly significant thing for Google's public, private, public policy blog to advocate for. Notably, they're part of um, something called the Global Network Initiative, right, which is uh, something they share with Microsoft. Um, Facebook is not. Uh, Facebook uh, says that they have a culture of real identity, and they're sticking by that, which essentially uh, means that for people in other countries to use the platform uh, in context where their government may wish to track them down, they need to do so as someone that is not themselves in an anonymized sense, which uh, means they could, in fact, be kicked off for violating the terms of service. But that's precisely what those sorts of policies result in in that context. Um, you can think of many others, too. The, the mobile one is probably the most important because, again, that's how so many people are accessing uh, you know, the Internet. And then you've got technologies like the Tor Project or other things that allow you to anonymize your connections to the government can't track you down. And those are, in fact, the, ex the exact sorts of things that the State Department has been uh, looking to fund. Let's come down here. Question. Amanda Postelnik, University of Maryland Law School. So the title of today's talk was Social Media, Force for Liberty or Oppression, more or less. And there seems to be broad consensus among the panelists that rather than it being positive or negative in its valence, it's an accelerant, a catalyst, a force multiplier. So uh, I, think, I think there's broad agreement on that. But then um, in Jim's comments, he was talking about the use of social media as a, a new way to effectuate civil society and governmental functions on the ground in Egypt. And in some of the writings on O'Reilly, I've seen the notion of government as a platform. Beyond being an accelerant of group organization and social change, whether we think it's positive or negative, whether it's liberatory or fundamentalist, are there ways in which any of you see social media tools actually changing the business of government or the relationship and perhaps the directionality of the relationship between citizenry and government? Yes. <laughs> yes, uh, I agree. Yes. Um, Do you want to go into that as the Gov 2.0 government as a platform guy? Sure. Um, so that idea um, is something which is articulated by my boss. That's uh, it's Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media. That, um, that's who I write for. And um, if you're not familiar with the, the idea, it, it's essentially um, looking at the, the paradigms which have made some of the most important uh, government decisions actually turn into economic uh, opportunity um, with some simple policy changes. The canonical examples are we weather data and GPS data. Right, where By unlocking those kinds of data, you've uh, stimulated uh, huge industries elsewhere. Um, we've now seen that potential with health data and maybe transit data and other things like that. Um, where this gets interesting with, with social media, I think, is in the sense that there are populations, um, both in other countries and in the United States, who traditionally have not had as much voice in politics, and particularly in governance. And what social media allows is for those people to be able to contribute on a horizontal level to one another, and also directly to talk to government. 
and where it's interesting is that you, if you look at the, say, the trending topics on Twitter, um, you'll see that there are a lot of them that are not necessarily correlated to um, the sorts of things people are discussing here in Washington. There, there's something else entirely. There are, Imagine that. You know, um, <laughs> there, and it's not just about celebrity elsewhere. I was going to say Justin you know. Bieber. Justin Bieber. <laughs> well, people are very upset that he cut we his hair. We just got a haircut, by the way. Um, <laughs> that, uh, and, and the question is whether um, all of those people uh, who are spending an hour on Facebook who are looking at uh, LOL cats, um, whether um, they're willing to spend some of that cognitive surplus, as Clay Shirky has described it, um, and turn it to a civic surplus, whether they're willing to help with crisis mapping in Egypt, whether they're willing to help uh, translate, whether they're willing to go out and uh, take pictures of their block uh, to contribute to the new open government platforms. Um, and some of the early instances are, are very, you know, are exciting. Uh, we, we've seen that when Gonim asked uh, uh, his fellow uh, Egyptians to go online to Google Moderator instance he set up, they went in the tens of thousands. And there are many, many, many questions that have been posed there and, and discussion around it. The question is always, to what extent do uh, elected officials then listen to those online platforms in terms of what people are asking for there and convert it back? It's much harder to do governance using this stuff, which then the tools are, by and large, pretty crude, than it is to do uh, campaigns or uh, organize going out in the street. Uh, it's much more messy, a lot more constituents. Um, but there is something different happening um, if you go and, and follow open government online or this Gov2.0 stuff. Um, you'll see the discussions around it. Um, it's early days yet, but there are reasons to think that um, there is a different relationship growing um, between citizens and government and more to the point between citizens themselves. It's when you give people the opportunity to self-organize, interesting things happen, whether it's the Tea Party or it's what's happening in Wisconsin right now. And just a, a slightly different take on that, but, it's, but the, I mean, people have heard the saying, you know, if you build it, they will come. And, and um, any of us, myself included, who went through the gogo.com eras know that, in fact, if you build it, they oftentimes don't come. <laughs> um, millions and billions of dollars spent on failed efforts. And that translates as well to our government. There has a, a, very, a, a surge of sort of 2.0 enthusiasm. In the, or is it 3.0 now? I never tried. <laughs> we have to um, work out 1.0 first. 1.0, yeah. And, and, and they were all planning to build these websites and have all this interactive function and, and blogs and be responsive and have Twitter feeds. And, 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 and that last point is important because, in fact, you, you shouldn't build it. You, should, you just go to where people are. And for better or worse, right now people are on Facebook and they're at Twitter. So uh, if governments want to move in that direction, they need to look at those platforms and figure out how best to, to operate there because they aren't coming to you otherwise. Uh, yeah, just to I mean, um, so this morning I was over uh, at a discussion that the Knight Commission held around this particular issue, the information needs of democracy and how do you create online hubs where people can discuss things. And one of the things that uh, someone said was this precise issue, you have to go to where people are online, much in the same way if you're fishing, you go to the you know, mouth of the river where fish are hanging out as opposed to uh, the fast part of the water where they might not be. Um, if you go to where citizens congregate online, there clearly are leading platforms. What's problematic about it is that they are third-party commercial platforms. Right, exactly. And there are terms of service uh, in terms of discourse and use that exist. So government has, is kind of stuck in a fix when it comes to these things. And it goes back to this issue of identity, 
and security and privacy. Um, if I use Facebook as my means to interact with citizens, then they are identified to me. And there are certain uh, kinds of speech that maybe they don't want to use, but they still need to be able to convey. And uh, what's important to watch here is that there is, in fact, an identity ecosystem online. There are a lot of providers who are trying to figure out how to do this. Facebook is now way ahead. And if you're not watching the trend, you might realize it when you go to do online voting for American Idol next week because Facebook is now handling that. That's a tipping point, right? It's no longer just about texting. It's a, you can actually go and like things. Now, when you like, there's a whole lot of user behavior that goes right back to Facebook. And remember, Facebook's free to you, so you're the product. So I have, I'll offer one other take on your question before I, I do want to bring us back to, to uh, the Internet freedom discussion. I, I do a lot of work on transparency and, and thinking about it. And, and maybe the most interesting idea, if not necessarily well, well thought through or well articulated, is that the problem, problem, people don't care about government or that they're not involved. What is caring? Uh, caring is is knowing something about a situation and having the capacity to do something about it. People are sort of rationalists in that they, you, they end up caring about things that they can affect, and they exercise what economists call rational ignorance when they can't affect something. So I think, I think government transparency has to defeat the twin problems of rational ignorance and rational inaction. Uh, the transparency it takes, transparency is part of what it, what it takes to fix that problem, it's not all of what it takes to fix that problem. Maybe I think I think you maybe you have to get the transparency that's necessary and then figure out where people are so that they can effectuate that transparency and, and change things the way they want them to change. I'd like to make sort of a, a, a sharpish break though back to back to these questions and and focus a little bit on on the US government's role, which we've touched on a couple of times, but haven't gone into into detail on. And I wonder if any of you, I'll suggest you, Alex, first want to talk about a guy named Alec Ross. Who is Alec Ross? What does he do? And what does he say? <laughs> okay. Uh, Alec Ross is the senior advisor for innovation uh, to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, Alec, at Alec J. Ross is on Twitter and has some 300,000 followers. Um, he is well known for being the founder of One Economy, which is a nonprofit that uh, does all kinds of laudable work. And uh, he served in the transition and has been um, very much part of the State Department's uh, use of, of technology in different ways. Um, if you think about the net freedom agenda, uh, he is probably as closely aligned with that idea in that sense as, as anyone is at this point. And um, he's been quite uh, ubiquitous in media over the last couple of weeks after Secretary Clinton gave her speech. So you're, if a hard time avoiding uh, him if you're looking for this stuff. That's, that's who he is. It's more or less what he does. Um, there are some um, really interesting wrinkles in terms of the different uh, sorts of things that he's supported. Um, it's not all about Twitter at all. Um, they have supported the uh, uh, creation of uh, civil society through a lot of the uh, use of organizing tools in other countries. Um, they've uh, tried to do some pretty interesting things with uh, anonymous tipping through mobile technology, uh, specifically uh, in the border uh, cities of Mex Mexico, um, to try to fight the cartels. 
Um, and they're trying to do some pretty interesting work around uh, these different tools, um, but are running into the political realities of uh, which, think, which groups that you may, may fund or not. Um, that's my sketch. I'll pat, leave it to these guys to talk more about the complexities of uh, the State Department and their net freedom policy. Maybe I'll suggest a big picture question for, for Chris. Uh, how much should the U.S. government make freedom in other countries a, pro a project of, of ours? What are the risks in terms of uh, blowback? What do we, what do we give uh, to governments we don't like when we make it a U.S. government project to install freedom in their countries? Well, to, ask your, to answer your last question first, what, what we give to governments is an excuse to, uh, to scapegoat and demonize reformers as agents of a foreign power, which sometimes is true, but most of the time, and especially recently, is not true. Again, we have, historically, we know a lot more about the U.S. government's activities in foreign countries in the course of the Cold War, things, activities that looked like they were indigenous movements that were not. I think what we have today is exactly the opposite, indigenous movements that are, by and large, genuinely indigenous. And yet, the few examples uh, of the U.S. government attempting or appearing to influence these gives opens up a, 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 a good old can of worms. I, I found this part of Morozov's book to be the most compelling and, and I think really challenging to what the what, U.S. government is What did, what did is he doing. say? What I, more or less what I just said, but yeah. he spends many, many, many pages doing it. Um, Alec Ross uh, does not come across quite as, as well as, as just presented um, uh, as, as a, you know, a benign and, and, and uh, there, there's a certain degree of naivete um, exhibited, it seems to me. Um, and like I said, I think a certain kind of lack of self-awareness. For me, at a, at a very big picture, the question is, why is this a core governmental function? Okay? Um, you know, I like to believe that the few core governmental functions were stipulated by the, con by the Constitution and were essentially the, the cabinet agencies at the time of George Washington, state being one of them. Okay. So I believe in a diplomatic core. I believe in a, an, a, an official agency of government whose job it is to relate to other governments. But when your job is essentially to, to relate to the peoples and not to the governments, which is what we're really talking about now, then, then that's a very different thing. And you would only do that, it seems to me. You could only justify that um, as being a core governmental function if you were 100 or close to 100% confident that it would advance our interests and or values most of the time. Because if you weren't really confident about that, then you wouldn't want to do it. And it seems to reflect the kind of internet utopianism that Morozov talks about, which is that openness and connectivity is an unadulterated good. And only in those, on those terms can I think you could make it a function of government. That's to leave aside the, the function of non-governmental organizations, many, including a place like the Cato Institute, to do it, but to do it not advancing the interests of a particular government or the people represented by that government, but by a particular ideology or people who self-select to promote that ideology. It's a very different ballgame, it seems to me. Tim, have I been picking up a I want to say something vibe from your end? 
Um, well, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I have a slightly different read on what's going on there. I think um, you know, the State Department has been in the business of trying to influence people within within other countries for quite some time. Everybody knows, and it's still going on. Radio Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberté. These are all uh, media functions that function through state and through what's called the Broadcast Board of Governors that were intended to go beyond the leaders to the people. And, and you know, some people say that they were successful in some ways. And I lived in a, I lived in communist Vietnam when people uh, were listening to Radio Voice of America religiously. And, um, um, but, and so what Alec is doing in my interpretation is, and others, is they're, they're taking the significant amount of money that was allotted. They get, we a lot more for that. Which is, it's called official propaganda. We a lot more money for that than we do for what some people might think is propaganda in the United States, public broadcasting, things like that. So um, I don't. I just have to be clear on that. But, uh, but uh, I have a friendly audience for that joke, though. <laughs> but I did that for your benefit. And uh, 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 the, uh, um, this is the Cato Institute, after all. Uh, the... Um, but so what they're doing is actually trying to modernize that, which is to say, you know, people don't listen to shortwave radio nowadays. They have cell phones. And how do we take what was successful um, in the past through these broadcast outlets internationally and update it to the Internet age? Um, so there's, there's uh, absolutely nuance to uh, where and, and when... Uh, the State Department, or Alec Ross or anyone else, has um, approached uh, engaging using these new set of tools. And what's interesting in terms of the, the premise of the discussion here, in terms of whether the Internet is um, unalloyed good or, or all bad, um, you know, I, I think we can all agree that it's much more complex than that. So we're, we're, we're all in agreement on that. Uh, the question is, as so many things, is where in the gradient do you find yourself? And then what version of the Internet are we talking about? Um, you know the the internet that someone else is experiencing in another country might be difficult because uh, of what the sorts of searches that are banned, the sorts of sites that are allowed to connect to, and in fact that's true here in Washington too. Of course, we know that certain government agencies cannot connect to certain sites uh, based upon what they might might be hosted there. Most famously, uh, unfortunately, the Air Force shut off access to the Times because they had WikiLeaks information. Um, you know, which was ironic in the context of the State Department. <laughs> obviously supporting internet freedom, right? Where the, this is not an irony that's lost on the rest of the world. Uh, and it shouldn't be lost in this audience here, I think. Uh, however, I think uh, by and large, the, the thing that's interesting about their position here is that the values around freedom of expression, freedom uh, to assemble in this interesting state idea, freedom to connect, um, that are uh, somewhat in the constitutional DNA of, of our citizenship here, uh, right down to the libertarians or across the other side of the gamut, um, uh, should be expressed online. And that the code that we create, the architectures for democratic participation, should in some way instantiate that. Um, and that's a pretty bold idea. Uh, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of contention about that, uh, certainly as the internet continues to grow up. Um, we're going to see some of the governance bodies become more internationalized, specifically ICANN. Um, it's not just a U.S. game anymore. That's the, those are the folks that control domain names. And uh, we're going to start to see a lot more uh, different characters online than just that old alphanumeric Roman stuff. There, already there's an Arabic internet, there's a Chinese internet, there's a vast Japanese internet. 
Um, Twitter is very different in Japan if you haven't checked it out recently <laughs> because they can fit vast amounts more into those, into those that short limit because their characters say so much more. I mean, it's like paragraph-long tweets, very different experience. And for the people tracking business models, they've had advertising from the beginning. Let's, let's explore this a little more. Um, I understand that, that the U.S. State Department might, may be tweeting in Farsi uh, in, or, or in other languages directly to the people. Was it, uh, do, and, and, I, and I think I heard somewhere that, that we're going to use some State Department funds to teach uh, people in foreign countries how to, how to use online, uh, online tools. Is that true? Any of you? Uh, I mean, I can speak to the, the Twitter accounts. Uh, I know, I know, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, they've set up now accounts in Spanish, in Russian, in Hindi. Uh, one in Chinese is coming soon. They have one in Arabic and one in uh, Farsi, and uh, those were important uh, for communicating directly to people. I think you might be referring. To, they also have a grant program that enables that, that supports these sort of internet freedom efforts globally. They, they just, uh, Secretary Clinton announced that they're going to pump an additional $25 million into providing grants for similar projects that, that use the internet in unique ways. I mean, they are looking at these sort of distributed server networks that, uh, that make it difficult for people to track um, speech online and things like that, so. Okay. Are there other questions? Again, I'm sorry if I, let's go to the back over here on the left, my left. Um, Fred Ferreira from uh, George Washington University. One question. Can you discuss about the tipping points between a couch revolution and a real revolution? <coughs> uh, what kind of... Re I'm uh, simply a couch revolution, couch, just uh, retweeting stuff and say, oh, I I'm making my part, I'm making my contribution, I'm retweeting stuff, and actually going to the streets and how the, this has taken place not only in, in Egypt, Libya, and also in the Tea Party. Right. Not just slacktivism, you want right. more than that? Slacktivism, that's yeah. good. <laughs> I, I think we all said this at one point or another, that it's all about people. I, it is, you know, I, I tend to think of myself as an Internet early adopter, and I think it has all kinds of promise. But at the end of the day, you're not going to cause a change of government without some physical action, that is, that transcends the Internet space. I, I can't imagine, in this, I mean, maybe in a, in a subsequent generation I, I, can, I can imagine it, but we're not, we're not there yet. I, I don't think there's any question about that, and, and part of the problem is actually um, a technical one, of all things. And this is very Internet-centric of me, and I'm sure that Evgeny will be upset if he's watching or watches later. But uh, frankly, uh, there's um, a real departure point between what people uh, online think that they can affect and what they actually do here on the Hill, because Congress isn't listening. They're broadcasting. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because they have real issues around online constituent identity. It's pretty difficult for them to tell who they're talking to online is actually from the district that they're supposed to be representing. So uh, you know things like faxes still get used, email gets overwhelmed, um, phone calls can swamp a switchboard. So the thing that still makes the most difference is when people actually travel to Washington and talk to the representative. Unfortunately, most people can't do that. Um, so there's still a long way before the kinds of interactions that are meaningful because they're from the person that elected them actually lead to offline action. I think that's coming, but we're not there yet. And there's also, uh, apropos of that comment, we're uh, just, just in dealing with 
transparency type questions, uh, online involvement with, with in traditional democratic governance. So a study, I think it was from the Congressional Management Foundation survey of, uh, of congressional staffers found that they tend to disregard online activities because they, uh, you know, the sort of everybody send in a fax, everybody send an email with the same, with the same content. Uh, they just dismiss that as, as people that don't actually uh, have the follow through, people that won't actually um, vote against them if, if they go the wrong way. So it's really even just traditional transparent style government, it's still going to be hands on. You still have to make it known to your representative that, uh, that you, and please silence your cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> should have had one of those great commercials at the beginning. I should have. I should have. <laughs> uh, other questions? Let's go over here. Hi, I'm Brian Jackson Green from the University of Chicago. I know that a few weeks ago the FCC had uh, proposed new regulations for um, addressing net neutrality. And regardless of where you happen to fall on the issue, I'm just wondering, considering the role of uh, the Internet and least facilitating um, Revolutions. You all seem to agree on that, at least, uh, in Egypt and uh, in Libya. And also, considering something like WikiLeaks, do you think there's a danger in giving a, establishing a legal jurisdiction for the government and uh, addressing uh, uh, freedom of, uh, of internet usage? Jim. <laughs> Tim. <laughs> well, I don't think they're establishing the jurisdiction. I think the jurisdiction already exists, and. Uh, and right now we're kind of we're going back and forth about where you know where to what extent exists where it exists in law uh, and figuring that out. I mean the internet. I mean d despite what many folks may believe, uh, it didn't emerge magically um, from the free market ether. Uh, it uh, it is actually a byproduct of government and it has a fairly established. Um, um, regulatory structure around it. I think the questions that we're struggling with now is to figure out how far those regulations should go, to really have a real discussion about fears about the unintended consequences of regulation, but at the same time to, to really hold dear these things that we do agree about, about, about its ability to give voice to people, to, uh, to create a, a new generation of speakers and how we protect that. Do, does, government go far, does government go too far? Does it go far enough? Are corporations a real threat to free speech? Um, if so, I happen to agree they are. Uh, if so, how do, we, how do we protect against that? You've, you've come across an area where, where Tim and I might have differences of opinion <laughs> in small ones, <laughs> small ones at least, um, but emphasizing the positive. The, the, uh, I, so I've, well, I've riffed, I've riffed on Egypt to suggest that it's unwise to increase government control of, of Internet access. And I, and I think there's a fair argument, at least, that uh, formalizing or increasing or whatever it may be, uh, the U.S. government's regulatory control over major ISPs threatens not that strong version of an Internet cutoff, but a weak version of it, where through wink and nod and shrug, the FCC communicates to ISPs you want to go this way at this time. And, and heaven forbid, in the event of some kind of an emergency, I think we'd be much better off without having a government uh, authority in place to order, you're going to do this right now or else. Because I think the, the, the corporation that is a repeat player before an agency gets to be very pliable. And there's a great article from a few years back, and I think it's the University of Florida Law Review called Administrative Arm Twisting in the Shadow of Congressional Delegations of Authority, 
where uh, Professor Lars Noah uh, makes the case that agencies get a lot of what they want by threatening various actions and then and then getting voluntary cooperation. And so it's it's much of this is a, is a discussion for a later day. But it, there is some I think some interest between myself and and friends at Free Press in the question of how good it is to have regulators work at this stuff rather than maybe going directly to Congress for for questions like that. Uh, I hope I've characterized the issue well enough that I don't get a, re a reply from Tim, but maybe he's uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that we agree on the end game in a lot of ways. And the question, the debate that we have right now is is on the means. And, um, and that is a very lengthy debate around the history of communications policy, the role of the FCC, the role of Congress, um, in the context of an ever-changing technical environment where where ISPs, internet service providers, are increasingly imposing themselves on this end-to-end -end network that I described at the outset of this debate, and, and actually putting themselves in a role of gatekeeper, uh, where I think in many ways in the history of the Vietnam of the of the internet they have not been. So you were doing great in the first half of that rejoinder, but I'm just <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, so I've gotten to report a bit on this from a couple different perspectives since I switched jobs while the SEC was in the middle of, of dealing with this. And um, one of the interesting things that uh, you can parse out of this uh, is in um, the idea that you're regulating the Internet versus access to it. Uh, now, the telecom lawyers will go into vast amounts of discussion about this, but it's a really crucial thing to, to talk about. And it's because it goes back to um, the history of, of telecommunications policies. And if you want to read a book about that, um, Tim Wu, uh, who's now an advisor of the FTC, uh, is a um, Columbia um, Law School professor who coined the term net neutrality, has written about this. And free press board chair. Yeah. Well, um, and, um, you know, so you know where he's coming from. Right, you, <laughs> he, and and he, it, you can tell pretty quickly where he's coming from. Um, he, he does have more, uh, um, I think, grounded understanding of at least the history of the policy involved, you may or may not agree with his conclusions. Um, the, the important thing, I think, to, to look at uh, in this context is how people access the Internet and which applications they're allowed to connect to or use and which content they're allowed to connect to or use. Uh, we're seeing um, what mm, my uh, publisher has called uh, the emergence of points of control. Right, places where you access things, places where data flows across borders, uh, who takes value from them, who takes a cut of it. Um, you can see the competition between Google and Apple emerging right now for mobile payment and publishers, uh, if you're following that carefully. So, uh, for instance, Apple saying we're going to take 30% of things that stream over our platform. Google says we'll take 10%. So they're trying to get people to come off their very popular, uh, you know, iOS platform and move to Android. Um, you're going to also see WebOS, which HP took. Um, Windows has now made entrance with Windows 7. And then uh, there are all these different places where the ecosystem is evolving. The challenge with the uh, net neutrality or uh, open internet, as uh, the FCC chairman prefers to call it, uh, I guess he hates the term, go, go figure at this point, um, <laughs> is uh, that um, they've exempted mobile. And there's some good reasons and bad reasons to think that that might be a good idea or not. Um, what's, what's uh, I think, useful to consider is whether in any given um, area of the country people have actually have access to different kinds of Internet or not. The reason I think the FCC cared about this is because they perceive there may be a market failure in wired broadband access. That may or may not be true in wireless 
there's a lot more options to me if I want a cell phone in DC. If I want wired broadband, I have very much fewer options. And that's one of the reasons they created this thing called the broadband map, which you can go online to see at broadbandmap.gov and see different uh, layers of access. So that's, I mean, just there's, there's a lot of context. It's probably a little bit out of scope for this discussion. So we're, we're getting close to wrapping up. So who's got the, the burning couple of questions that might bring us home? Back on the last row there. Hi, um, uh, Andrew from GW. Um, there were uh, talks about it earlier about uh, governments trying to kind of take out the, the revolutionary part of the Internet and, and also just about trying to, to uh, regulate the Internet as a whole. And, and there's a couple of uh, technical uh, solutions to that that uh, have been proposed uh, such as onion routing, which uh, was mentioned earlier in the form of the Tor project, and dark nets, uh, and, and such as the the free net project. And I was wondering if you guys could go over some uh, pros and cons that you think that those uh, solutions propose. Propose solutions. It's going to be it's going to be Alex or it's going to be Tim. Well, I mean, I I I uh, I'm an advocate of these sort of citizen-driven efforts to 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 root around. Uh, the network or root around uh, the authorities over the network. And so I, I find that very exciting. And I think that's what's really, this is something that we could discuss in, in great detail is that there, there is a genuine movement out there of technologists who care deeply about this stuff and are willing to volunteer endless hours to trying to figure out how to protect end users, to how to use encryption systems on phones so that you can't be tracked, to how to create these sort of shadow um, servers so that, that uh, the governments can't figure out where these communications are coming from. Um, and I think in many ways we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, and I'm hopeful that the amount of attention that's been given to events in Tunisia and Egypt and Bahrain and elsewhere will only inspire this community to do more. And it is interesting to see that evolution, right? Uh, what One of the things that the Internet does is I literally act as a platform for collective action. And there are a lot more um, geeks, frankly, who care about this than there ever have been and have more tools at their disposal to organize. And you can see some remarkable things happen. Uh, you know, we saw the earthquake in uh, Christchurch. Uh, a lot of the same... Um, sorts of uh, activities that happened after the Haiti earthquake happened. But this time, they did it in 24 hours instead of a week because they knew to organize a Ushahidi map. They knew to set up a wiki. They knew to uh, Google immediately set up a person finder. Um, they were able to get FEMA involved sharing the hashtags of people discussing. Uh, they were able to do any number of things which gave people better tools in the ground to actually respond to the disaster. Um, and those same sorts of things are... Um, I think are going to continue to evolve um, in terms of people's collective action quite outside of government um, exerting itself overseas. Uh, you can see that happen with uh, the project that uh, George Clooney supported, uh, that satellite sentinel on the um, border of Sudan, where um, his funding and technology is actually using satellites to track whether uh, the Janjaweed or other forces are moving across that border. That's not a government decision, but they're using satellite technology to do that. Um, we saw the speak to tweet uh, thing that Google and Twitter set up in Egypt, right? That was not something that the State Department set up. It was a former State Department official, <laughs> uh, Katie Stanton at Twitter. But um, certainly there, there is a, um, there's a nexus there between companies and citizens and uh, people who are willing to fund it. 
uh, that go well beyond what government itself is supporting. So some of our conversation has alluded to uh, what, what I would phrase as whether the U.S. government is walking its talk. Now, there are good reasons to, to think twice about WikiLeaks, and I think WikiLeaks did an incredibly bad job in PR of making itself and its leader, Julian Assange, the story. So we're still today not talking about the important revelations that WikiLeaks had to offer. But the U.S. government's response was nothing to, that, that I could get behind, and I think a lot of people uh, are, became anti-anti-WikiLeaks. You couldn't really be <laughs> for WikiLeaks, but it was pretty easy to be anti-anti. I'm going to disagree with you in the sense that I think WikiLeaks did something quite important, in the sense that before they were a whistleblower site, actually an award-winning whistleblower site. Um, and what they did uh, with the... Uh, war logs from Afghanistan and uh, what they had from Iraq and eventually uh, the, the cables is partner with media organizations around the globe. And it's fundamentally changed the way that uh, media works in the sense that before uh, if government could, uh, for instance, with the Pentagon Papers, sue the New York Times. New York Times won that case, which is an important precedent actually in this context. Now you have multiple media organizations, and by working with them, they gain an important imprimatur and platform to get the information out and to um, have them convert the data into something that people could understand as a story. So I think you're, you're, you're quite correct that when people talk about WikiLeaks, they're not talking about the revelations, because the revelations are over the Guardian. Mm -hmm. OK, so you're, are you pro-WikiLeaks then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, um, what, I, what I am pro uh, is supporting people's uh, freedom of speech online. Right, and that's, the, that's what I wanted to get to, was the question of the US government's reaction to WikiLeaks and the signal that it sends to governments around the world, uh, to, to phrase it plainly, what kind of hypocrisy have we got going on here? Let's go down the row. I think we should start down there. Start at um, that end. Oh, uh, the hypocrisy is that on the same day that uh, Secretary Clinton was, you know, was, you know, proselytizing on this idea of, 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 the freedom to connect, not uh, a couple of miles from the location of her speech, um, there was a court uh, session uh, where the government was presenting its right or its case to secretly subpoena companies to, in this case it was Twitter, for information about uh, some of their uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter accounts, I guess, of individuals who were involved with WikiLeaks. Um, you know, we can see what the other, you know, you had uh, Senator Joseph Lieberman and staffers making a call to Amazon uh, and asking them to shut down the WikiLeaks website. So there is this kind of corporate government um, collusion in the suppression of free speech that we're seeing more and more. Um, and, and so, yes, the hypocrisy is there. And I think um, that uh, I think that Secretary Clinton has political ambitions. I wouldn't be surprised to see her run for president in 2016. Um, and, and, and I also think that she's trying to make the freedom to connect kind of her legacy as Secretary of State. And that with that, I think it's incumbent upon those of us uh, who are in the body politic to pressure her and say, all right, freedom to connect. Let's do it. What does it mean? And... Uh, you know, how does, you know, l let's get beyond WikiLeaks and let's really figure out, 
you know, what we can do here, because I think the freedom to connect is a, a fundamental right and that it should be protected. Chris, final thought? Uh, far be it from me to suggest that the government isn't, uh, isn't hypocritical. Um, just, just very quickly, I mean, I think that we missed an opportunity. It, it's not gone forever with respect to WikiLeaks and with respect to access to information and transparency, which Jim has done a lot of work on, to focus on two issues, one of which is that, that the government employs secrecy, the U.S. government employs secrecy in ways that are not truly conducive to U.S. national security and many times harmful to it, that many times more, ac more access to more information by more people, I believe, would advance U.S. national security rather than the alternative. Um, but the U.S. government is still trapped very much in the, it's the classic type one versus type two error problem, which is that the, the, the fear that one piece of um, unhelpful information would be divulged is overwhelming uh, the the opportunity that could be gained from more people having more access to more information. Alex. So I think it, it's probably useful to observe that we're all in quite early days here uh, and that the Internet has grown and, and blossomed, frankly, into a platform um, that spans the globe in ways that nobody anticipated, uh, unless you're reading people like, uh, say, William Gibson, um, or uh, maybe Isaac Asimov. I mean, truly, we're living in, in the future, and uh, the ability to do certain things, like to hold up my phone and have it transmit images in front of me to the rest of the world is an extraordinary thing. Um, the challenge is that, in many ways, uh, that platform is very brittle, much more so than people realize, and that the choices that government makes in terms of what we think of as our freedoms are incredibly impactful, and sometimes in really small ways. Um, there's something called the domain system, right? Uh, it, when you p type in your uh, .com, whatever, it, it brings you to a certain IP address. That's actually one of the linkages that was broken uh, in Egypt. And if you're not following the story, our own government has uh, decided to create legislation in uh, the Senate that would use that system um, to knock down or uh, basically to cut off access to uh, sites online that they say are infringing copyright. And in fact, uh, earlier this month, they mistakenly took down 84,000 of them. They went back up again. Uh, at the uh, uh, end of last year, uh, the new uh, copyright or IP uh, official uh, in the White House um, supported similar actions against other sites. Now, they're justifying these actions because they're some, against some of the worst of the worst. Uh, child pornography, for instance, uh, something that I think nobody uh, think should be online, but there's also some complexity in terms of the sorts of intellectual uh, property that is up there in terms of music or video. So why does this matter to internet freedom? Because of something called intermediary liability. The idea that a site itself can be held accountable for the kinds of content that's on it. Now this is a principle that we need to watch very carefully in terms of how governments justify these things, because when there are precedents set, then they can take down a site. And often, um, some kind of speech that they don't like is grouped with some kind of content that they say is infringing copyright. So the internet we know today may not be like the one we get in five or 10 years if certain pathways go down, if certain um, uh, back doors are built into it, if certain laws are created, which means that law enforcement always has access to filtering you at the root level, if they can look at your packets, uh, if they can limit applications, uh, this is commercial companies, that, that compete with their own, if they can knock applications which have political speech that the company's founders don't like off of their huge uh, application store. 
These are all root issues to our what we think of as democracy. But the internet that we know today is not profoundly uh, a public space, even though the secretary may describe it as one. In many cases, it's hosted by private companies. So if you don't think the government has a role there, probably you're mistaken. If you don't think that the internet has a role in revolutions, well, clearly that's also a, a um, position that's under attack. But I think there's no question that we all need to be very thoughtful in looking at how those policies are made. And, it, and it's incumbent upon us as engaged citizens to make sure our voices are heard when we see those policies go in directions that may threaten the freedoms that exist there now. If you came here today or if you logged in expecting a nice Marquise of Queensberry-style debate on the topic <laughs> tools of freedom versus tools of oppression, you're sadly disappointed now. <laughs> And you should be, because I think all of us are debating with ourselves over, over these questions. Uh, what parts of the Internet are the best tools of freedom? How does it work to advance freedom? Where does it fail freedom? What would we do to prevent the Internet from, from defaulting toward oppression in the places where it, where it may do that? I told you the story uh, during the Q&A of the Egyptian cab driver who informed me so well in my poorly, poorly designed scientific study of what's going on. In the in the Middle East and North Africa, well, just yesterday I returned from uh, from Florida, and I was picked up by a cab driver at the airport whose hair was exactly like the cabbie I'd had the week before. And in the moment when I first saw him, I thought, "Is this my friend, the Egyptian cab driver?" It wasn't. I figured that out pretty quickly. But we began to chat as I as we often do when I'm when I'm coming back, and and because he was friendly, I said, "Can I ask you a question that might sound silly? Are you Egyptian?" He said, "No, I'm Iranian." And so I engaged him with the same, in the same kind of conversation that I'd had with, with the Egyptian. And I, at one point, because I didn't want to skew things, I obliquely referenced Twitter. No, no sign whatsoever that he knew what Twitter was or that it had any effect on Iran, which he's so, so interested in seeing benefit from, from freedom. So my scientific study comes to the same conclusion that our debate has. We don't know. <laughs> and if you're doing your job, you don't know, but you'll continue to investigate and think about these problems so that we can all work together on making sure that the Internet stays free here, and especially that it can be used as a tool for people around the world to advance their interests uh, of all kinds, but especially their interests in political freedom. Thanks very much for coming today. Please join us upstairs for uh, a little reception. Thank you.